Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. Hello, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and I have a question. What do a tanker and a CH-47 pilot have in common? No idea. Well, you know, no idea, really? Really? Because I think that they can both sling heat rounds, and they're also going to be here to discuss doctrine during this episode. Today. (laughs) Today I'm talking with our benevolent overlord here at the old USDV, Mr. Rich Creed, the director, and uh, Mr. Jim Ben, the deputy director of the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate. Between the two of them, we're going to address two fundamental questions that have been creeping up. First of all, what is CAD? And secondly, why is there this prevailing punchline that doctrine is boring? And is this idea that doctrine is boring, this bad image, is it fixable? So, gentlemen, welcome, and let's discuss. Thanks, Nikki. Thank you, Nikki. So I want to dig straight into our discussion by kind of first establishing what CAD is and how our organization fits within TRADOC and the command structure. So, sir, can you give me a quick rundown? Um, yeah, I mean, the bottom line up front is the Combined Arms Doctrine Director puts doctrine into U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command. We are the doctrine in TRADOC uh, in terms of administering the doctrine program um, for on behalf of the Combined Arms Center Commander. Uh, right now, that's Lieutenant General Martin. Uh, but we ultimately do it on behalf of the, tr- the Training and Doctrine Command Commander, General Funk, uh, on behalf of the overall Army. So we fall under the Mission Command Center of Excellence, uh, which is part of the Combined Arms Center, just like all the other centers of excellence. Um, the CAC Commander is the Army's proponent uh, for the doctrine uh, that the Army uses. Uh, and then I, in my capacity, uh, and our organization here, CAD, uh, acts as the TRADOC executive agent uh, for making that program work, administering and managing it, um, and then providing situation updates to the rest of the Army on it. So we've got a couple big responsibilities. We oversee the day-to-day execution of the Army's doctrine program. And then probably more importantly, because uh, a lot of the folks, in fact, most of the folks at the different COEs don't need a lot of management from us, um, we really focus on ensuring that doctrine is integrated and synchronized at three levels. Uh, within each of the warfighting fun- functions, across warfighting functions, uh, that's where the combined arms comes from. Uh, and then up and out of the Army uh, with the other services, uh, and then our treaty allies uh, like NATO, uh, or the Five Eyes, Abkins, nations. So in that capacity, we work closely with the Joint Force to ensure that Army doctrine uh, is congruent with Joint Doctrine. It doesn't always have to agree, but it, it, it's got to be congruent. Um, and, and likewise, NATO doctrine. So when the U.S. Army agrees uh, to approve, uh, or we call it ratify, an Army or a NATO doctrinal publication, that really means it becomes Army doctrine as well in the NATO context. Um, And we work with the major commands and centers of excellence to develop not just doctrine, but to to provide a doctrinal basis for the other elements of the DOPLPF. Did I miss anything, Jim? No, sir. Uh, You've captured everything. Um, As I've 
been able to observe uh, Tradoc's evolution over a couple of decades, um, the, res the decision to place responsibility for certain things out at CAC happened right around 2003. Uh, it was a transformation memorandum that made the CAC commander responsible for the one of the TRADOC core functions, uh, and the doctrine core function for TRADOC. And so that's how we assume our role as lead agent. So it's been, um, uh, but it's been a, a, an, an evolution of responsibilities because uh, TRADOC is reorganized. TRADOC uh, adopted the center of excellence model. And so when TRADOC uh, changes uh, its uh, structure and, and its alignment of responsibilities, I, I, we adjust our uh, site picture uh, to fit in with the overall TRADOC structure. So I think most young officers and NCOs, in, soldiers in general, have a tendency to encounter their first rundown of doctrine or their first field manual or publication coming out of a DOTD, a Directorate of Training and Doctrine, out of the Centers of Excellence. So what makes the DOTD writers at the COEs different from the writers here in the old USDB? Well, so we can overgeneralize um, in some ways, so I'll try not to do that. The Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate is primarily responsible for doctrine. In other words, the doctrine we write is for echelons above brigade uh, and combined arms. So it doesn't focus on one single warfighting function, the exception being the command and control warfighting function, so those five and six series books, because the Mission Command Center, of which we're a part, has proponency for those. Um, at each of the COEs, they tend to focus on specific branch doctrine or types of formations related to certain branches uh, or warfighting functions, so the Intel Center, Maneuver Center, and so forth. Um, so you mentioned that most officers and NCOs, their first exposure to doctrinal publications uh, once they're in the Army happens at the COEs. Well, that happens during their basic officer leader course, captain's career course, and so forth, when they're company grade officers or uh, not commissioned officers uh, and NCO PDS. So um, the difference is focus, and, and so their organizations are a little bit different because they integrate the training piece and the doctrine piece uh, where the rubber meets the road at that company uh, battalion level uh, that the officers or NCOs are gonna go serve in. And so the people that work on that doctrine are generally more junior with more recent experience in those types of things. If you want someone to write doctrine on a tank company uh, or a CH-47 uh, outfit or something, you want someone that's been doing that recently, that's got recent experience uh, and so forth. So you tend to have more company grade and, and, and a smaller number of field grade officers, but you have warrant officers and NCOs that are, that are writing the doctrine uh, as well. And then from that doctrine, they, they create the products used for training, the training circulars and so forth. So there's a very close nexus there that's um, similar to what the director of training here at MCCOE and uh, us here in CAD have. Um, because we're echelons above brigade and the dot here at MCCOE is uh, focused on echelons above brigade, divisions, corps, theater armies, and so forth. Um, we have a similar relationship. We have much more senior people because you really, to get the experience serving in echelons above brigade, you generally have to be older uh, and more senior. There aren't as many billets for junior officers or NCOs in those, in those places. 
Yeah, um, I think the biggest thing that I recall is uh, the time when there was a D uh, at the end of DOT, and they were DOTDs, Directorate of Training and Doctrine, because at that time, uh, most of the instructors were also attempting to write doctrine in their spare time. And unfortunately, we had discovered over time that that really didn't work out optimally because you need time to prepare for to be an instructor and you need dedicated time to perform doctrine development activities. So, so there were DOTDs at, 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 uh, during the time when instructors were doing a, a significant, at, at the centers of excellence, uh, and they weren't centers of excellence, and they were all, they were just schools or centers. And so during that time, uh, the instructors uh, were also doing the doctrine writing. Uh, but I think another key uh, key difference in what goes on here and at the other COEs uh, is probably uh, our responsibility for the program. We have oversight, uh, quality control, the programmatics, uh, so, we are our responsibility for making sure that the program is functioning well and the integration across all the COEs is probably the biggest difference. So it's more than just integration across the COEs. We also have work that contributes to joint and multinational doctrine as well. So how do authors here work with their external counterparts? Yeah, so you kind of start with how we're organized, right? So we've got a tactics division and that's tactics that are broadly applicable across the whole force and not a specific branch or warfighting function. We have do, uh, doctrine division that, that addresses op, the operational level of conflict, so the FM3Os, uh, the FM324 counterinsurgency, uh, those kinds of publications. And then we have a joint and multinational uh, division, um, and, and that's they do exactly what it sounds like. But they're not the only ones that participate and develop and join in multinational doctrine. Um, because you've got a diverse uh, workforce here uh, made up of civilians and, and generally field grade officers, uh, typically in the rank of senior major and lieutenant colonel, um, you've got a, people with a lot of different backgrounds. And so what we do is we task organize to purpose. So you may be assigned here in a specific division, but you're gonna do a lot of other things. Nobody is a one-trick pony. They all have to be able uh, to contribute. So they may be working on a publication here in CAD or a chapter of a publication, um, but in any given week, they'll be asked to review uh, a publication that's under development at one of the COEs. If you're an Intel officer and we've got something that came up from the Intelligence Center of Excellence, then you're gonna be one of the officers that will review their publication. Uh, to make sure that it meets all the requirements of the program as well as congru is congruent to a combined and joint approach to operations. Um, same thing would be true with multinational doctrine. So we're not the only people that, that, that play in that multinational doctrine, and when I say that, it's specifically NATO for the most part. Um, if there's something to do with uh, military police operations, and there's multiple NATO publications on that, then some military police officers and NCOs will participate in developing those publications and then certainly reviewing them. And then the same thing applies to the joint, right? So a lot of the things that, uh, it, that 
joint doctrine addresses are things like air ground integration, fires, airspace control, and so forth. So we use officers with an air defense background, an aviation background, uh, or a field artillery background uh, to look at those publications. And then they may be asked to, contrib to, to participate in a writing team. And so we will send people out or participate virtually in these writing teams, and so that becomes another assignment. So it does, you don't have to work in the joint and multinational division to do that. And then we have a command and control division that does exactly what you would think, a command and control doctrine. Um, and then a headquarters design division uh, for echelons above brigade, which we can talk about later if you want, because there's, that, that's the one lane that we have that directly links the rest of the DOTML PF and not just doctrine. Uh, we've got a special doctrine uh, division that does things like uh, jungle operations, desert operations, extreme cold weather, mountain operations, and led by Ted Crisco, who's sitting here in the room keeping an eye on us right now. But they also, and everybody knows this around here now, they're the ones that produce these podcasts and our audio books and so forth. So they were involved not just in writing doctrine, but in the outreach and socialization of doctrine and the big ideas with the force. And then we have a division that, that makes the trains run on time, right? You gotta make your way through the Army bureaucracy to get things authenticated by the Office of the Secretary of the Army. Uh, and there's regulations and processes that Jim talked about earlier that we're responsible for. So everybody who produces a doctrinal publication in the United States Army sends it here through CAD, uh, it goes through uh, the Army Doctors, Doctrine Publishing Division. It gets reviewed by editors. It gets fact-checked and checklisted and make sure it's, all its references are straight and that it's formatted correctly. And then it moves up uh, for ultimate approval uh, by the Office of the Secretary of the Army. So there's a lot going on. And it's uh, kind of a blessing, really, that uh, one, the, the folks at the, each of the COEs have been around for the most part. That's really what the strength of having long-serving uh, Department of the Army civilian professionals out there because they know how it works. And so that keeps it from being more work than it needs to be for us because we would be overwhelmed if we had to correct every single thing that came back up here. And for the most part, that is not a, a problem that we have to deal with very often. We, came, we became uh, uh, more involved with uh, uh, joint and multinational activities Again, as TRADOC headquarters reorganized and shifted those responsibilities here to us, so we began to fulfill the head of delegation roles, uh, for example, at uh, the uh, NATO and ABCANS fora. And uh, in terms of providing a TRADOC response to uh, the development of joint publications, again, that responsibility came here to us. So uh, as uh, I when I talk to people about our organization and when I talk to people when they newly arrive here, I explain to them that uh, our portfolio is much larger than just Army doctrine, but it, it, the good part about being here is the opportunity to get involved in things. The number of uh, exercises, uh, training events, uh, experimentation, uh, we are involved in, in I, I would I wouldn't you know I, I don't think it'd be an exaggeration to say that there's not a part of the Army's portfolio that we don't touch and so from the joint and multinational perspective again that's the opportunity that's the the growth opportunity that you get here that you don't get in other places so you've actually 
Which is your favorite one? Yeah, I, I have. I have. Uh, well, I, it's probably because of the amount of time that I've spent working uh, with the Colombian Army. Uh, they, I, I definitely have an affinity uh, for them. But uh, uh, as I have worked with uh, militaries that are uh, in some ways uh, less capable because they don't have the resources that we have uh, in, in uh, smaller countries, uh, uh, the, the, the most, uh, uh, I think, uh, the one that is most different from what we see ourselves doing is uh, when I got to work with Botswana. Now, Botswana's defense force, uh, it, it exists primarily uh, to protect their primary source, their primary gross national product, which is tourism. So the Botswanan army uh, is, is uh, purpose-built to take care of the indigenous uh, uh, animals uh, that, that form the basis of their tourism, uh, sponsoring safaris and all those kinds of things. So uh, it was, it's been very interesting uh, to, to try to help them establish a doctrine program that is unique to what they do. But it's opportunities like that that uh, I've really enjoyed having a chance to take part in. So as a doctrine writer here, that's been something that I can say has been a unique experience of, of being able to participate in special projects beyond just writing books. I got a chance to go to Defender Pacific this year and observe mm -hmm. the Joint Forcible Entry Training and development with going from Guam all the way to Indonesia. It was partnership between multinational forces. What other things do we encourage our writers here to get involved with in CAD? So, you know, we had a discussion with some of the senior leaders in TRADOC over the last few years about what constitutes a broadening assignment and, you know, the, the cool guy and gal jobs. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't that long ago. I guess if you're old enough, nothing seems long ago. But um, as late as, you know, before September 11th and, and the wars uh, of the early 21st century, you know, becoming a doctrine writer was part of uh, the types of jobs that you sought out um, as part of Project Warrior and other types of things. You wanted to be a, an observer controller at one of the combat training centers. You wanted to be an instructor, uh, particularly in the captain's career courses, but also at CGSC. Uh, and you wanted to be a doctrine writer. And Jim talked about there was a nexus between doctrine writers at the centers uh, and, and the instructors, and that was deliberate because you wanted that recent experience. And we still have a little bit of that. The, the instructors contribute quite a bit to the things that we're working on, particularly books like Tactics and the Command Control Planning publications. Um, and so we had this conversation because over time those jobs seemed less and less desirable um, and uh, because, you know, hey, we want deployment experience and time in tactical units was, was where everything uh, felt like it was being rewarded. I'm not sure that was always true, but that's, that was the perception. That shifted over the last few years. And so becoming observer controllers, becoming doctrine writers, becoming instructors, again, is, is rightfully so being seen as a path um, for, for professional reward. And it, it's not just, you know, promotion and, and, and those kinds of things or command, but it's also that intellectual broadening. And so everybody that comes here gets an opportunity. Um, and because the opportunities are, <laughs> are so numerous, 
it, there's really no shortage of, of opportunities for people to go observe a warfighter exercise as an adjunct collector of lessons learned with call with center farming lessons learned um, to participate with uh, the echelons above Brigade uh, TRADOC program office and the Future Force Integration Directorate as they seek to modernize uh, the Army so that you get to participate in that. And when you participate with your NATO or other allies, you know, and, and we send relatively junior people and we send majors out to these things, they get asked, so what does the U.S. Army say about this? And they are representing the United States Army and they don't you know, they can reach back and ask a question if they don't know the answer, but our expectation is, you know, they will tell them exactly what it is that we do. I mean, they're ambassadors uh, for us, and they're also sources of information. So this is one of the few places in, in the Army, I think, that if your phone rings on your desk, somebody's going to ask you um, not your opinion on something, but they're going to say, what does the U.S. Army say about X, Y, or Z? You know, what does doctrine say? And so for till that request for information is answered, you are now the United States Army. And so we've got battle drills that, you know, uh, and because of, again, the skill of our uh, relatively diverse uh, group of uniformed people and Army, long-serving Army civilians, almost all of them were retired lieutenant colonels, um, you know, it, it's, you would think that would be stressful. Somebody calls and says, hey, what, what do we say? But it's really not because there's always somebody around here that, I mean, Jim, Jim knows, and he's been doing it longer than anybody, but I, I would say we can usually get an answer on anything in an hour. Um, and, and that's pretty good. And, and that's the priority, right, is to support the force in the field. So, I mean, you hear funny stories about us trying to fax publications to people in Afghanistan, you know, on Christmas break. Uh, in the middle of the night, right? And, and so, you know, that doesn't happen that often, but it does happen every once in a while. Yes. So in terms of um, uh, opportunities that, that we've had, sort of out-of-the-box opportunities, uh, I guess uh, I've been fortunate enough to see uh, in the past uh, couple of decades, every time there has been a real crisis or a real uh, military, or diplomatic, or political uh, kerfuffle someplace, either shortly before or shortly after we've been asked to send people in to assist. So the Russian in, in you know, uh, dust up with the uh, Republic of Georgia. Uh, a year later, we were part of a team that went to the Republic of Georgia to help them contend with that the, the sort of a precursor of the Russian new generation warfare uh, that was kind of an early exposure to that. So we were over in the Republic of Georgia to help us with that. Uh, before, uh, I'm sorry, sorry uh, after uh, um, um, the, uh, oh, I, can't, I can't remember now, but it'll come to me, but uh, when the Nagorno-Karabakh uh, situation was percolating, uh, Mike Flynn and others were over in Armenia to help them again uh, see, really validate uh, uh, whether or not their Russian heritage and the Russian approach to warfare was going to be uh, uh, suitable for their challenge. And, uh, and, and I'm, I'm sorry, I forgot, I, I was thinking of Ukraine. Uh, when that situation uh, 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 deteriorated, um, we were part of uh, 
uh, call a, a lessons learned team and, and State Department team, again, that went over. So whenever uh, critical events have happened, you know, we've been part of teams that have gone in to make assessments, to contribute what we could. So it, again, it's just an almost unlimited opportunities that we get uh, be doing what we do. And we have some habitual relationships too. So the future battlefield talks with the Israeli Defense Forces, um, we participate in that at least twice a year. Usually the, the planning and, and determination of what we're gonna do when, with the general officers when they come over and then we give presentations on um, doctrinal or uh, doctrinal PF, but heavily doctrine themed topics. And we do that every year. Um, until COVID happened, we, we generally uh, exchanged visits with the Land Warfare Center in the United Kingdom. They came here once a year for an exercise and we would meet uh, with them and then we would go over and meet with them uh, as well. And so we had opportunities with the French. It's never bad to go to Paris. Uh, but the other thing that's interesting is for those people that don't really like to go TDY a lot, we get a lot of people that come here. I mean, if there's one place that uh, foreign armies send people to come visit, collect, uh, kind of get a sit rep on what's going on in the United States Army, it's the Combined Arms Center here at Fort Leavenworth. And so we've got uh, a rather robust group of foreign liaison officers here that we have uh, pretty regular interactions with. Um, and you know, we've been, the Army's increasingly open. I think it was 2016, 2017 that the Army really emphasized interoperability with our allies and partners and that we would write for release and so um, and the command climate and trade op since then has been very encouraging in terms of uh, working with our allies and partners and you know if there's any way we can share something with people we do and so that provides a lot of opportunities for one-on-one -on -one interaction for the people here on the team as well so it always seems like especially coming from the desk of a writer that we we do have some, as writers, frustrations and frictions that we have to overcome in order to continue doing the writing job and doing it well. So with your experiences, how, how do you do that? How do you manage that working on this job to continue, even with the, the frustration that you have balancing concepts and doctrine or, or running after a new concept that appears to be a shiny object? And how do you keep motivation to keep write, researching and writing? So can, yeah, uh, can I try, try that? Um, uh, a couple of TRADOC commanders ago, uh, G General Perkins um, was speaking uh, at, um, it, it, was a, it, it was a sort of a senior army day uh, in, in, uh, in one of our partner nations, uh, and they were undergoing a transformation. Uh, and, and he made the comment that I have used ever since I, I first heard him make it. He said, in any transformation effort, in any transformation effort, the intellectual transformation must precede the physical transformation. You can buy all the new toys and gadgets that you want, 
But if you don't have the intellectual capacity to understand how to employ those systems and the implications of what those changes are. And so that idea of the intellectual transformation, and again, that's a, another notion that I share with people uh, that are outside the organization and inside the organization, because what I believe is what we do is we provide that, we, we help provide and facilitate that intellectual transformation. That we have to connect the dots between what we're used to doing and what we may be required to do and whether or not the new gadget is actually going to make any difference. Uh, the, the new term of art that we want to bring into uh, the lexicon, is it really significant? Is it really important? Does it enhance our understanding or capability. So it's that intellectual transformation uh, piece that I, I, I'm I get really excited about, uh, and our chances to discuss with other folks. Yeah, I, and so I think there was a, there was a what, about three years ago, we were in a session late on a Friday night up in the CAC commander's office. We were working on the previous 3.0, so maybe it was four years ago. Uh, and we're arguing vehemently and this is so a colonel a gs-13 a brigadier and a three-star general all arguing as the cat commander is doing stuff on the whiteboard and um, saying what do you think and and when when people ask us what we think our job is to say exactly what we think not just nod our heads and say that was wonderful and brilliant and you were a very handsome man you know i mean it's uh, the expectation is that we will we will always display tact, right? But we have to be candid. And so oftentimes someone will come up and say, hey, I was thinking about this, and it could be a very senior person, and or a staff officer has provided some words in a briefing, and all of a sudden those words really catch on, right? They catch up on in the Pentagon, and they become the jargon of the month, or in some cases it lasts a year or so. And we want to do these kinds of things. And, and so uh, it'll percolate its way over to us and someone say, we need to put some more of this in doctrine. We got to put this in doctrine. And so you ask politely for what exactly does that mean? Like, how would you describe what it is that you say? Because it sounds cool. I mean, I, I like the word. It's a good word. It, it resonates. Um, it's very popular. But what does it mean? I mean, what is it going to mean to the Army? What is it that you want us to do differently? Um, and sometimes they can explain it, and, and sometimes you can help them by saying, okay, if this is what you mean, let me show you all the other things that we already have for that. In other words, oftentimes something seems new when in actuality it's just new to the person that's bringing the word to it. They're not familiar with what the doctrine already says. Um, and, and, and that happens, and when that does happen, then it's our job to say, okay, if there's a compelling reason, sometimes there is a compelling reason, right, that you want to change something, you want to put a new word in to catch attention and, and maybe to, to have a transformative effect on the Army. Okay, that may be worth um, the effort of dealing with all the consequences of making the change. Because when you make a change to something, particularly something relatively major, um, and in some cases already well understood, what you do is force, there's a ripple effect like throwing a pebble in a pond, and it affects the entire body of doctrine. So are we gonna, if there's a cost associated with it. There's actually a, a real financial cost in, in some cases uh, to, to making changes. 
Uh, because you're going to have to go change everything else to make it congruent. You can't have one book saying one thing and it's not congruent with all the other ones. And then we have to make sure that everybody understands the change, right? So it's got to be educated or trained or both. Um, and then there may be implications to the way we organize formations to conduct operations um, and what we emphasize in terms of allocating resources in the Army to that. Um, so like Jim said, you really want to get the intellectual straight, right? There's got to be a logical taxonomy that makes sense to people because uh, there's nothing worse than working on something and everyone's running furiously for that change for three or four months. And then one person just asks the obvious question that somebody missed and says, why are we doing this again? And, and everybody goes, uh, okay, we're just kidding. You're right, that, that wasn't a good idea. So maybe we won't do that. Um, and so it requires a, a certain amount of, uh, I mean, I, is moral courage the too strong a word? I, I, I don't think so. Um, but you, you don't want to be, you know, there's a fine line between being Dr. No and always saying, nope, 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 uh, that's, that's a terrible idea. Because if you do that, then one, people aren't going to bring their new ideas to you because a lot of the ideas are new ideas. And two, you get a reputation as being fossilized in some sort of an ivory tower and you're just reluctant to change things. Um, and so you know what they'll do? They'll find somebody else to do it. And that's happened before. Right? They said, okay, you guys don't think you can do it. I'm going to hand this off to somebody else. And then you guys can just check their work. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we don't want to go down that path. You want to be a valuable member of the team. So you want to help get to yes uh, with as little change as possible. Um, because there's an impact on the force. It's like playing crack the whip. Yeah. So doctrine and concepts, it, it always seems to have this very complicated relationship. And it seems like we managed to make it work in the end. But there, I know that there have been times and we have allowed either a, an undeveloped concept to make its way into doctrine, or we've just, we as doctrine writers in the Army have flat out gotten it wrong. What are some of those examples and how do we correct for that? Well, I think it, it gets to language and words, I think sometimes is somebody said they want to get something in there. So I think it, well, we have gotten things wrong, I think, before, but, but wrong is, is, it may even be too strong of a word. It's that you just didn't get it as right as you thought because you need a lot of experience and repetitions in the field, either during training and exercises or during real-world operations, right? Um, so Jim was here when they did the coin manual, but that was an Army-wide effort. It was a huge intellectual effort. They brought in subject matter experts from all over the world to work on this. Um, and they created a publication that was pretty good. I mean, it was well-written, extremely well-written. Um, it had a lot of important ideas that captured experiences in the field, uh, particularly in Iraq. Um, it had a strong intellectual uh, and theoretical grounding. Um, but we found uh, over time, and, and we're going to take a look at it next year sometime, that you know, we learned some lessons from there, some things in there. It's not that what was in there was wrong. It, it just didn't cover everything and put everything in the context it needed to to be as useful as it could. I think that would be one example. Exactly. From, from a programmatic uh, standpoint, um, we always operate with the best information that we have at hand. And we're getting input from senior leaders and the retired uh, uh, senior leader uh, community, uh, ongoing uh, activities uh, from the private sector. Uh, we get input, perceptions, ideas. 
And so the, the, the example of, of having to change direction uh, is just the structure of our doctrine itself. Uh, in 2012, we introduced a, a flavor or, or a type of publication called the Army Doctrine Reference Publication. Uh, now, it was the companion to a very short, condensed Cliff Notes version, the Army Doctrine Publication, because our notion, the input that we had was, you know, this inf in this information age and uh, uh, the uh, unwillingness of people to expend a lot of time uh, uh, reading documents, we needed a short version uh, followed with, uh, you know, in, in conjunction with a longer uh, discussion to get, uh, the, you know, to get the understanding across. Well, in truth, what we found out was that uh, our Cliff Notes versions were so short that they were of little utility. So we have changed the structure now so that we only have one doctrine publication with our principles uh, in it. It is the Army Doctrine publication, and it is what was previously the Army Doctrine reference publication. And again, uh, were we wrong at first? Well, we were operating with the best information we had, but thank goodness we have the ability and, uh, and, and the, the moral courage to switch horses, even if it is midstream, we can switch horses. We don't stick with a plan just, just because we conceived it some time ago. If we need to change, we can. Yeah, the whole discussion of mission command and command control, which was the topic of podcast number one, yeah. right? Um, you know, we went too far in one direction and ended up confusing a lot of folks. And then we had to come back and say, uh, right to the TRADOC commander and say, hey, boss, you know, you're the only one that can explain this thing. You and a handful of other senior officers can, can explain this to uh, our field grade officers. And so that's not a good way, you know, if you have to explain the doctrine to everybody, then it, it probably isn't right. And so, you know, we, we put in the effort to go back and fix that. It, it wasn't that uh, a lot of the ideas were wrong. It was that we went too far. Uh, and in such a way that we confuse people. And, and so that does happen. You know, multi-domain operations, that, that concept has been around, officially published three years ago, um, but we've been discussing multi-domain battle since 2015, 2016 as a concept. And there was a lot of pressure to put um, the words multi-domain in as many publications as we could. And, and we had an honest discussion with the senior leaders. They said, listen, if you put the words multi-domain in front of every noun, yeah, it'll be new, but no one's going to know what you're talking about. And it essentially becomes meaningless. Um, so how about we do this? We take a, a, a stair-step approach. There's aspects of that concept that we know are true already, right? I mean, having to do with the operational environment, how we, we have to be able to see ourselves, see a threat, uh, and then put it into context in, in some part of the world. Okay, we can put that in the doctrine, you know, there, we, and we did, and we've been doing that for, for several years now. Um, but it takes time for people to, to get the repetitions in through those experiments, through those exercises and those war games, uh, and, and, and in some cases in, in, during real-world experience, and to think about um, that new idea in, in all the different possible contexts that the Army could be asked to conduct operations in. Um, and so I think... That's actually pretty much a success story from our perspective. And so people say, 
when is multi-domain operations going to be doctrine? Well, part of it has been in doctrine now for three or four years. And so we tell people there's going to be more, and, and, and we've got publications coming out. But for now, read what the current doctrine says because it's pretty close to what you're going to need to do. But, again, it takes <laughs> patience. I mean, we have that same conversation, I don't know, uh, 10, 15 times a month. Uh, with different people. In fact, you get phone calls from people in one building, and then a week later you get a phone call from the next office over in the same building somewhere asking you the exact same question. And that's okay. I mean, that's, that, that's what we exist to do is to educate. So we spend a lot of time doing that. So there's, I guess when it comes down to language, and I, I'm saying this, it's not me. I'm just saying what other people are saying, that, uh, that doctrine may be boring the language that we use uh on occasion and i'm I'm, like again i'm not the vessel i'm just simply the vessel for these words that come from others twitter we won't Um, kill the messenger (laughs) so how did this this horrible punchline of i use doctrine to fall asleep at night how does all that sort of stuff get started and then also like is there a way for us to overcome that image if so how well the first thing i'd like to know is who is making these comments (laughs) Just for the record, uh, I w- would like you know uh, a source if you if if you feel free to do that. Probably not in this forum. We can work that offline. <laughs> yeah, I think you got uh, sorry. So some of the perception is based on experience, right? If you go to a schoolhouse and they give you your box of books like they used to do in the old days and now they give you a CD or give you a a link that you can go and they give you homework assignments to read things, you're going to be told to read things that aren't particularly interesting to you because of your branch or your background or the next job you're going to have. It's not necessarily applicable to you. I think you have far fewer complaints about uh, doctrine being boring if someone is asked about the doctrine pertaining to their own branch or their MOS, right? Because they're fascinated by what is applicable to them. Um, What's more important to us is not whether someone is bored by the idea of doctrine in general, but whether they have a problem with the quality of the writing uh, of a specific publication that's applicable to them. So I've got an interest in this topic, and I'm going to be the S3 of a combined arms battalion, so I take the ATP on the combined arms battalion, and I read it and it leaves me feeling flat because it's poorly written, uh, things aren't clear or it belabors the obvious, you know, and I'm not saying, I'm just picking that book as an example because it would have been applicable to me. Um, then I would have said, you know, I wanna get a hold of the people that wrote this and, and provide some suggestions, right? And some specific grievances. And that's what we try to do when we, we staff it. You know, so I would tell people if they found uh, publications in the past of a specific sort that's of interest to them, boring or poorly written or unintelligible or whatever, that they take an active role in doing the staffing review for the next draft of, of that same book. Because the quality of our doctrine is ultimately driven not by the people here in CAD or at the various dots and dot Ds around the COEs, but it's driven by the quality of the feedback it gets as it's being written. Right, And so it's fine to criticize it after the fact, but we really need people with skin in the game on a particular topic to become personally invested in in the quality of the publications that are applicable to them. 
And I think we've had a lot of success with that over the last few years in, in widening the aperture so that you don't treat the review of a draft publication as an additional duty for somebody that's got you know a really full inbox already. But you find that community of interest that's got a passion for the topic and have them go to town on it, which is one of the reasons why the, the retired officers uh, are, are, are so good because a lot of them have time for it or they have a passion or they wouldn't be willing to review it for you. The phenomenon that I've observed going out on uh, MCTP warfighter exercises or uh, out at one of the CTCs is that nobody, when, when asked the question, nobody ever reads doctrine. Nobody has any use for doctrine until they're asked to do something for the first time. If you are in a, a, a command post and uh, you know the uh, S3 or the G3 turns to someone and says, I need you to produce this template or this matrix, and the person has never done one of those, the first question is, oh my God, where's the doctrine? And they're scrambling for the publication and any information they can get their hands on to perform a task that they're unfamiliar with. And so, and, and again, that, 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 is, that is just human nature. That is just human nature that we tend not to place very much value in those things, you know, that, that are common second nature uh, to us. But I've found that when, when someone's doing something for the first time or something that they don't have a, 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 an extensive background in, it's always, give me the doctrine. Well, your best officers and NCOs, when they're going to a new job, typically will read uh, the publication that addresses either that specific job, which may be multiple publications, or that type of organization. So I'm going to go be a Division G3, then I probably ought to read the Division ATP. I probably read a review FM30, and I probably ought to review the tactics manual, and then I make sure that I have those with me, either digitally or hard copy, uh, somewhere near my desk because those questions come up all the time. You know, those questions that you get grilled on by your CG or your battalion commander or your brigade commander, and oftentimes they'll say, well, what is doctrine? what's the doctrinal answer to that? Uh, you you want to have that. So, again, like Jim says, all of a sudden it becomes relatively important. Um, I think the other thing, and it's, it, it's kind of funny, is there'll be anecdotes, right? So the anecdote is... Someone will start with saying, we don't have any doctrine on this topic. And so, no kidding, a general officer um, will call the CAC commander uh, if they don't know us personally. If they know us personally, they'll call me uh, or Jim. But typically, and it happens probably once a month, somebody will call the CAC commander and say, we need some doctrine on this uh, or, or that. Or do we have doctrine on this or that? And uh, almost always, I mean, I'm talking 99% of the time, if it's happened 100 times in the last five years, it, it's, there's only one instance I can think of where we didn't have doctrine addressing the topic already. And so, again, that's that battle drill, right? We, we copy and paste some things, we put it in a note, put a reference in it, shoot it up to the boss so that he could share it with whomever. So, you know, a lot of people that complain are also people that don't necessarily read it in the first place, right? Because it is a lot of work. It's time-consuming. 
Um, and I will tell you that over some period of years, we tended to make things longer and longer, and we've really been trying uh, in the last few years to make things shorter. We got very verbose in some cases, so we have to accept some responsibility for that perception because perceptions aren't always wrong, right? Um, some publications made it out the gate that probably weren't as well written as they needed to. Uh, again, Jim talked about that doctrine 2015 thing. Well, that was a that was on a timeline. And so we needed to do a whole lot of publications in a very short time. So you can do quality, quantity, or speed. Pick two. Um, we went for quantity and speed. Since 2016 or so, quality is job one, like the old commercial on TV. Um, and so we've been allowed to, I mean, we have to give you manage expectations. We have to provide production timelines and so forth. But when we run into obstacles and say, we don't have this right yet, um, the, the senior leadership within TRADOC and the, and the Army writ large has backed us up and said, well, it's more important to get it right than get it fast. Uh, and that will help with the quality of the writing, too. You know, the, the more you can polish something, the shorter you're going to make it. Uh, and, and the old saying of if I had more time, I would have written you a shorter letter. That, that is very much the case with doctrine. And so we can make things a little shorter and then provide opportunities for, uh, for people to absorb it in different ways based on their schedules and their, uh, the way they learn best. You know, some people like to read. You know, there's people say the millennials don't like to read hard copy things. That's not true when it's a book that is applicable to the job that they're in right now. They want a hard copy with them because it's quicker to get through it that way. Um, if it's something that I might have to reference, then they want it digitally. Some people have jobs where they have long commutes or they're, uh, they, you know, they do long individual uh, physical training sessions. You know, audiobooks work for those. You know, I couldn't listen to audiobooks because I would be one of those people that they would put me to sleep at night. You know, that would be my lullaby. I'm not an audiobook guy. But there's a point we get enough feedback that there's a ton of people that like the audiobooks. And so that's an opportunity to, to, to learn as well. Other people like vignette-type approaches, right? Uh, and then I guess the last point I would make is we always have to remind each other. Typically, people will get a book and they'll look at the first chapter, uh, which is why the first chapter is so important in any publication. But after that, they use it like a phone book, right? I mean, they're going to the topic within that that they need. No one reads doctrine, or most people shouldn't read doctrine, left to right like a novel. That's not how it's written. It's not intended to be that way. It's intended to be a reference uh, with logical groupings of subject matter. And so if you try to read everything as a novel, uh, that probably is going to bore you to tears. But if you focus on the things that you want to get out of it and just focus on those areas, that I think that's helpful too. I, I made a comment at our last doctrine forum that um, the doctrine that we write, the, the, the information that we want people to understand from reading our doctrine is becoming more complex. I think that uh, the, uh, without the ability uh, to get a certain number of repetitions and, and practice and, and until this becomes uh, until we become as comfortable with uh, what is going to be multi-domain operations uh, and our new large-scale uh, combat operations, until we get as comfortable uh, with this as we were with the airland battle doctrine, uh, it's going to take some commitment from people uh, to invest in understanding 
Uh, and, and however that understanding occurs, whether it's classroom instruction, whether it's reading, uh, whatever, whatever it takes to get that uh, kind of depth of understanding, uh, our, our soldiers, our leaders are going to have to invest time uh, in order to apply the done. Yeah, because you're talking about shifting culture. Right. And so when the culture norm is the type of thing that we're writing to, you can say less. Right. But when you're trying to change culture, you have to probably include more things in there because you can't make assumptions that people know uh, all of the the uh, the subject matter. Right. It's not second nature, as Jim mentioned, on, on some of these topics. Um, and that that requires a whole of army effort. That's not a CAD thing. That's uh, uh, happens in the classroom and has to happen at the combat training centers and so forth. And it, you know, I mean, so airline battle didn't just like get published and then the whole army understood it immediately, right? It took probably close to ten years, and really we got to the top of our airline battle execution game for for large scale combat operations in the nineties. Right where we got really good, and the 2003 invasion of Iraq is like the the, the capstone event. Uh, some people like to point to Desert Storm. I would talk say the huge number of forces involved. You know, yeah, the doctrine was very important. Absolutely, it enabled that. But the small number of forces executing almost perfectly in 2003 really shows you how good we got at something because all of that stuff was second nature. Everything across all warfighting functions. Uh, and the joint combined arms approach. On the intellectual side, you know, execution always is going to vary. But, uh, and coin is another example. You know, we got very good at that, um, and at least at the tactical level. And so the, the tactical execution, that became culturally second nature to the Army, so you didn't have to write as many detailed things. So we're just in that, I think, tra another transition point, like Jim said. So... When you, when you want to bring new individuals in and you're looking to help manage the language during that period of transition and you want to bring new writers in, like me, what are you looking for when you hire another version of me? Though you can't hire another version of me because my talent is infinite. <laughs> As is your humility. I was just going to comment on that. But, uh, Scout pilot. Yes. I'm just going to say. So we... we uh, we like uh, people with uh, a, a kind of a natural curiosity about things. Uh, absolutely. And uh, someone who uh, has uh, um, uh, creative, critical and creative thinking, uh, a capability, a, a willingness to take on a difficult project and to become uh, somewhat of a subject matter expert in it, and the uh, ability uh, to communicate their thoughts and ideas with others. Those are some of the things that we would look for. Yeah, intellectual curiosity is a big deal. I mean, because when you're working on a book, it's a research project. It's like doing your MMAS uh, or a master's thesis. Some of them, I, you are, you could even be up at the PhD level in terms of, hey, I have to do research. So I said, so, you know, why are we changing this book, right? I mean, what problem are we trying to solve? Most of the stuff we do is not a fresh start writing a book from scratch. It's taking the existing thing and modifying it, which requires you to go back and look at the previous versions, 
to see if we said something more accurately or more clearly in the past that's applicable to the modern day, as an example. Um, a willingness to, to reach out and ask people questions. I mean, you got to be able to network and find other subject matter experts or true subject matter experts if you're not one yet on that particular topic. Because everything we do is collaborative. I mean, there's no Lone Ranger work here. And there's no um, first cut that, that survives uh, initial contact. Uh, there's, we say we don't write, we rewrite. And we rewrite and we rewrite. And we, we call, we, so those types of skills require somebody that's not afraid to put themselves out there. I'm going to write a draft out here, and then I'm going to show it to everybody else, and they're going to you know, put me through the murder board uh, and tell me what's wrong and, and make me explain myself and so forth. But it's, everybody goes through that. It's a team effort. Uh, and I think it's kind of fun uh, getting everybody here in the conference room like this, and then they're throwing up their words on the screen. And everybody's reading it, and they're you know good-naturedly poking you in the eye, saying, "What do you what do you mean by this? What do you mean by that? Why don't you just say this?" Um, you know, a lot of times we'll joke around with because uh, it's human nature to want to make something sound good when you write it, so you use big words and and lots of extra words and and say it again and then say it a third time and um, and so when you ask somebody, you say, "So what are you trying to say there?" and they just say it out loud. Well, what I want it to do is X, Y, and Z, and, and we're gonna do it with uh, one, two, and three. And then you just look at them and say, well, why didn't you just write that, right? And so, uh, you know, you need to be uh, literate enough to be able to, to read complicated ideas and understand it, but you gotta be willing to, to type those first words out and, and put yourself out there a little bit. The curiosity thing is huge. I think it's helpful for us. It, we found people that have uh, a little bit of interest in history, uh, military history in particular, is useful because it helps them visualize things they've never done before. And so if you've got an interest in military history and you can recount, you know, whatever that, you know, the civil, U.S. Civil War is fascinating to you or the First World War, or the Korea War, Vietnam, or even uh, Afghanistan and Iraq. But if you are passionate about those topics and, and well-informed by it, that gives you a bunch of dots that you can connect in your head when you're working through problems uh, in current doctrine. Um, in fact, that's kind of the, one of the reasons why we use the uh, Army University Press uh, documentaries as a vehicle for introducing people to doctrinal ideas um, because it helps people visualize things they haven't done before. So people that already have that passion for history kind of have uh, that ability to do that. Um, you need people that are a little bit uh, brave and willing to stand on their, their principles. In other words, they got to argue. And then when I asked them or Jim asked them, hey, so what do you guys think? You know, we're up there telling them what we think. And then we say, okay, what do you guys think? And if everybody in the room is nodding their heads up and down, you know, you're either a genius and you had a really good day or everybody just wants to get out of there, right? So you, when we ask you what you think, you need to say what you think. And we've had people argue us off a of position. You know, I get really excited about something. I think this is the way we got to do it. And then people, you know, they make a case and they, they got to sell it. Uh, and that case has got to be strong enough that it survives contact with the senior leaders in the Army as well. Uh, but we've had people do that. And, and, and again, I think that's part of the fun, but you got to be willing to do it. Just like when we take people up to the CAC commander's office to work on, you know, review something to do with a book, and the CAC commander says, well, what do you think about this? 
you know, a lot of times I want to look down the table and say, hey, you first, uh, because I'm going to tell the boss what I think, but you guys throw it out there and then I'll back you up, right? And so because a lot of what we do is trying to convince people to either stick with something or that something needs to change. So it takes a certain kind of personality to do that. But if you like that kind of intellectual back and forth, you know, it, it, it's a lot of fun. That was another conversation we had, I think, with one of the CAC commanders was they mentioned, how many people do you think are standing around right now on a Thursday night uh, arguing about some doctrinal point and how we want to conduct operations? And I said, I have no idea, sir, but it's probably not very many people. And he's right. He said, I bet you right now we're the only people doing that. And so that's kind of an awesome, awesome thing, too, because you, you work and traffic in ideas, and then you, you, you communicate those ideas to 1.1 million people, uh, and then you look for feedback. And so that's the kind of person. So when is the next AIM cycle opening up, and what should people be looking for if they're interested to come and work at CAD? Well, we just wrapped up this We one. just finished uh, the, the uh, fall uh, one, and it'll be in the spring. Uh, and uh, yes, uh, it, this, this is uh, a, a great place. Again, a, a great growth uh, opportunity. If I was still in uniform uh, and if, if, I had, if I had the opportunity to understand what goes on here, the opportunities, um, we just sent uh, one of our division chiefs uh, up to work with the, the CAC commander who's preparing a briefing for the Secretary of the Army. And they are using uh, uh, virtual, they're going to make this presentation in a virtual reality environment. And, and this, has never been, this has never been done in TRADOC for certain. I don't know uh, across the Army, but it's never been done in TRADOC. And this is, you know, the first of going to the Secretary of the Army. And one of our division chiefs was in the room. Uh, during the development and uh, and rehearsal for this presentation, so again, what kind of what, what growth opportunity? You know, what better growth opportunity could you get? You know, listening to sen senior leaders debate the ideas and prepare. You know, for this level of decision briefing. Uh, you know, again, uh, I, I would just encourage anyone who, uh, at any point in their career. I can't tell you how many people have told me that after assignments here, they said, I've never felt smarter than I feel right now because I've had time to, to think and reflect and read the doctrine. And so people leave here, uh, I think, feeling well prepared uh, to do whatever their next assignment is going to be. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with me today and also taking the time to, to present the backstory and also the truth about what it means to work in the combined arms doctrine director it is greatly appreciated oh, thanks thank you had a good time our pleasure thank you so before i launch into thanking the listeners let me start off with one thing in getting ready for this podcast i had to canvas several sources for the juicy juicy background on our directorate and one person who offered me a vast wealth of knowledge about how cad became cad was mr clint anchor our previous director here at the combined arms doctrine directorate so clint if you're listening thanks I also want to push out and 
I also would like to go back to a classic of Army and CGSOC, Sam's Crowd. Uh, Walter Krechek's U.S. Army Doctrine from the American Revolution to the War on Terror. This book provides a great look at the evolution of Army Doctrine from our first regulations for the order and discipline of troops in the United States, which was published in 1779, to the current service doctrine that we have today. It's a terrific book, great opportunity for somebody else to expand their knowledge on the history of our doctrine. Also, Breaking Doctrine is a team effort. Without the crew that we have in Special Doctrine Division that Mr. Creed talked about, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show at all. So we'd especially like to thank Captain Wyatt Harper, who is our sound engineer and also our editor, and he makes us sound like absolute rock stars. So thank you to our listeners for joining us today. And don't forget to subscribe on either Google or Apple Podcasts. And you can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook. We're also on Twitter, as well as we mentioned, at U.S. Army Doctrine. And that'll get you updates for new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and also publications. And finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been Breaking Doctrine. <laughs>